Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, the podcast that takes a fresh look at the past week's news, or at least it did, but no deal preparations mean that all looks are now stockpiled and in tins. This is episode 136, I'm Tin and Duyeb, and happy not Brexit week. Obviously, I know you're all disappointed because your Brexit street parties have had to be cancelled for Saturdays, and I bet in line with the occasion you hadn't planned anything at all and just assumed that it would happen without conferring with anyone or checking what needed to be authorised, and you just assumed they'd let you do what you wanted and add ready stockpiled cans of roast dinners and instant cake powder to hand round. But hey, we still might be leaving in April or May or never. And does it matter? Because Prime Minister and hard-boiled shoe Theresa May has promised that she is on the public side like a fucking thorn. And MPs have voted to take back control, but only for a little bit on a Wednesday in order to get votes that won't really mean anything. It's a bit like saying, yeah, let's go fourth gear down a residential road, and then being too scared to go into fifth on the motorway. For a long time now, there's been no single definitive answer to many of the questions surrounding Brexit. The answer to what is Brexit, for example, could well be either the result of an ill-thought pipe dream by blustering elite fuckknuckles and a disillusioned public. It could be the catastrophic tantrum conjured by adult babies and forced upon an austerity-hit nation. Maybe it's the natural consequence and sum of a pandering to the far right, years of privatisation and a swine-fancying prime minister whose greatest achievement involved walking off camera after an interview before you could swear at the telly. Or maybe, maybe, the answer is it's just car crash airbag filled with mid Boris Johnson's fevered wet dream night terror realised. Any of those would do, plus some more sensible answers, no doubt. The question, why is Brexit, has, well, very similar answers, but with some added ones about a stubborn need of the government to hit their head against a table repeatedly and say that it's progress. Or maybe it's the notion that Britain is the world's best country, combined with an insistence that we mustn't let anyone come here to check in case they realise it's really not. Who is Brexit? Now, that's a much harder question. I mean, Brexit could be Johnny Depp, because although he's attractive to many, most of the rest of us have very much realised that he's abusive and overrated, but still find it very hard to avoid him when he's in absolutely everything. Maybe it's Michael Jackson, because, you know, Brexit spent a lot of money in order to ruin children's lives, but many are turning a blind eye to it because they've been enjoying the idea of it for 40 years and still really like the early stuff. 
or more likely Brexit is Theresa May, who after failing to get the extension date she wanted from the EU and being handed two other choices by them, announced that she was making an urgent speech on Wednesday night. She promised it for a 10.15, but she didn't arrive at the podium until nearly 10.45, proving she's unable to deliver absolutely anything on time. And then rather than, as many were hoping, and understanding that much like a really stubborn giant tumour that she needs to be removed before Britain has any sort of hopes of survival for the future, May insisted that she knew the public had had enough and blamed politicians for talking about nothing else and avoiding making a choice. Yes, this from the woman whose catchphrase Brexit means Brexit meant she was using the portmanteau at least twice as many times as anyone else. A woman who insists on returning exactly the same unwanted deal each time in order to avoid having to consider anything else and who is also very much a politician. I'm starting to wonder if Theresa May has disassociative identity disorder and at some point she'll just go to look in the mirror and have a moment of clarity and have to send everyone in the Commons one of those giant Clinton's apology cards. Ah, who am I kidding? She'll never have a moment of clarity. We all know that the closest we'd get to May stepping down would be her saying resigning is resigning 400 times before spending two years stuck at number 10 unable to find a viable way to leave. This, of course, hasn't stopped others from trying to make her leave, and an unsuccessful, albeit probably didn't try very hard, may not have even been anything more than a distraction tool, coup, uh, supposedly happened over the weekend. The Times, the newspaper that is the answer to what if the Sun could actually construct sentences, scooped that Tory MPs plan to oust May with her replacement being either, get this, Jeremy, I'd probably end up forgetting my keys and sleeping on the doorstep of number 11 because I wouldn't even know where I lived, Hunt, Michael, Larry the cat wouldn't stop hissing at him because animals can sense evil, Gove, or David, we can't have a Prime Minister who every time he appears on TV or meets global leaders, they and we all ask, but who is that? Lidlington. Every time, that would happen every single time. Who is he? Can you remember his face? No. While all of those options feel very much like hiring an arsonist with a petrol-filled hose in order to tackle a blaze, I guess out of all three of them, Michael Gove would make the best caretaker Prime Minister. But that's only because he looks like he's wearing a rubber mask and would run around upsetting kids. Lidlington denied a coup was happening and said that he was 100% behind the Prime Minister, which of course is the perfect position to stab her in the back from. And Gove said that it wasn't time to change captain of the ship, I'm guessing because it's sinking anyway, so it's best just to scrabble around looking for lifeboats. It was, of course, all over before it started, showing that Conservatives, once a party that, despite all their other awful, really awful qualities, you could always say were a well-oiled, or perhaps in many cases, oily machine. But now it seems that they even fail at coups to get rid of a failing Prime Minister who's failing to push through a failing project. Their old phrase of you can trust the Conservatives with the economy may now have to be replaced, as many would just imagine they'd lose the economy down the back of a car seat and then bang their head every time they tried to look for it. What could that story have been a distraction from, you ask? Remembering the very brief thing I said several minutes ago. Well done, you're really paying attention. I'm very impressed. See me after class. Well, the non-cuckoo took up the front page of various papers on Sunday instead of the anti-Brexit People's Vote March, which happened on Saturday with between one and two million people taking part because apparently, according to much of the media, several people continuing to not have a clue about what they're doing is, of course, much more important than millions of people very clearly stating what they do want or rather don't. I mean, I say clearly, but some were there demanding a people's vote because they still somehow have faith in humanity, despite everything. Some wanted a full-on revocation of Article 50, and some just wanted you to see the excellent way they've done a lovely pun on the EU for their banner. But the overall message was that it's not working, and to prove it, they used their freedom of movement to stomp all over London and say so. 
It was constantly reported that two protests were happening over the weekend, even though the other protest that was mentioned was the March for Leave, which was kind of more of an unhealthy ramble. It wasn't much of a comparison, really, as numbers for that varied between 50 to 100, depending on which car park they were congregating in. But despite this, of course, blowtorched guppy Nigel Farage so that those on the People's Vote March didn't represent the people, even though they were people from everywhere representing themselves. He said instead that the 100 March for Leave participants were a symbol for millions of Brexit voters who either weren't enthused or are so hardline that they're afraid to leave their villages. Of course, by this logic, then the millions of people's vote marchers must also represent billions or even trillions of Remainers. So fuck you, Farage. Meanwhile, an online parliamentary petition to revoke Article 50 has now received well over 5 million signatures, though pro-Brexit critics say it's all down to bots, which it isn't. Though if it was, then fair play that this is all such a shit show that even bots have changed their minds since 2016 and have swapped sides. Yes, Brexit is now such a mess that even autonomous programmes think it's a bad idea. Which brings us back to the big Brexit questions, and the next one is, when is Brexit? Now, many showed that they hope it's never, and now it definitely won't be this week, and it possibly might be April. The EU gave the sort of concessions you'd give a 17-year-old with a beard trying to buy an Alcopop, and while refusing to extend Article 50 until June the 30th, they said it could now be extended till April the 12th or May the 22nd, depending on if anyone comes up with any good ideas or has any hopes of enjoying the Easter break that could be trampled over. May called an emergency meeting on Sunday at Chequers to discuss bringing back her vote for a third time, and she did that with the sort of diverse cast that you'd only find on a comedy panel show. This included bin bag full of dead leaves, Boris Johnson, pepperami mascot, Dominic Raab, the rejected third member of Sparks, Jacob Rees-Mogg, curdled milkmaid human, David Davis, hate-filled boil, Ian Duncan Smith, constantly looks like he's taking a shit, Julian Smith, Tom from Father Ted, Brandon Lewis, stock photo of an idiot, Steve Barkley, Alistair Burt, who I didn't even know was a politician and really looks like a penis wearing glasses, definitely a penis wearing glasses, Michael Gove, David Lidlington, who looks like, no wait, nope, still still can't remember and wanker Damien Green. Steve Baker aka Bert from Sesame Street's Disturbed Cousin also turned up like a fly excited by a manure convention. Ian Duncan Smith when he arrived did so in a classic sports car with the roof down in one of the few moments I really wished I'd had the abilities to conjure an army of birds to shit on command. Yes nothing says future of modern Britain like 13 middle-aged white men racing to tell one woman what she should do. It was revealed afterwards that the group referred to themselves as the Grand Wizards, which either they haven't thought about at all, or they have, and that's worse. Though credit where it's due, despite the Conservatives being inherently racist and KKK references being unsurprising, if I did see Boris, IDS or Raab wandering around in a full clan outfit, I'd automatically assume they'd got stuck in their duvets and were too stupid to work out how to escape it and too stubborn to admit anything at all was wrong and that it was all going to plan. The result of these meetings, well, they obviously went well because Boris Johnson wrote in the Telegraph that May needed to channel the spirit of Moses in Exodus and say to Brussels, let my people go. Forgetting, of course, that Moses was supposedly born in Egypt, so if May did channel him, she'd probably have to deport herself pretty quickly, which, to be fair, might be a very good solution. During her comments statement on Monday, May ruled out a meaningful vote for this week, which of course didn't rule out any meaningless votes or even several pointless ones. And she mentioned that no deal was now not going to happen while still mentioning that it can't be ruled out and then hinted at a second referendum being a possibility but also not. 
BBC chief political correspondent Vicky Young tweeted that she had no idea what Theresa May's Brexit strategy was, which both simultaneously proved that the BBC are perfectly in line with public opinion, and at the same time, by Vicky presuming she had a strategy, showed that BBC are still more pro-government than they should be. To be properly non-partisan, Vicky Young should have said, this has all gone completely tits up, I'm going to put my head in a bin now, please come and shake me when it's all over. May instead told the Commons that there was now her Brexit, no Brexit or slow Brexit, which I believe they're going to be practising on the next series of Strictly and mainly involves going round and round in a circle while gurning constantly for two years before repeatedly falling over your own feet and onto your arse. That, of course, wasn't the end of the stupid for the day, and following this, during Brexit debate log stardate 96830.16, Labour MP and wraith that feeds off people's confused faces because how else do you explain her, Kate Hoey, told Parliament that she doesn't call no deal no deal, but instead calls it a different type of deal that would take us out. Sure, Kate, except it's still an absence of deal, which is why it's no deal. It's like me saying that I don't call what Kate Hoey says bullshit, just a different type of lying or ignorance that also happens to be massively shit. Then on Monday night, three more ministers, who I would name but you won't know them or care, resigned from the government to vote for the Letwin Amendment, which was not only proof of nominative determinism, but also a significant constitutional change that means Parliament will get control of Brexit for one day on Wednesday, at which point it'll probably vote for indicative votes, which won't really count for anything, but will indicate what votes MP may have that do count for things in the future. Yeah, taking back control of a very small part of things to push for things that don't mean anything. Yeah, basically it's all still pointless but sort of symbolic that it may not be because the government lost and MPs won, etc, etc. I'll tell you what's symbolic. We have May, the daughter of a clergyman, regularly losing ministers, which makes Brexit look a bit like her delayed teenage rebellion against her dad. Is that what it's all about? Is it? Then, minutes after voting to take back control, Parliament then voted against the Beckett Amendment to have a vote on no deal if there was still no deal seven days before the exit day. And that is Margaret Beckett, not Samuel Beckett, despite what you'd think. So they kind of said, hey, let's have control, but don't go overboard. A bit much, know what I mean? And now, of course, we should ask, how is Brexit? And still, no one really knows, though uh, while we may get to hear some alternatives right now, I'd hazard a guess at unwell. In other politics news, as if there is any, Labour MPs voted to remove Ian, I've got such a tiny face, Austin, and Mike, the exact opposite in terms of face size, gapes from the Foreign Affairs Select Committee on account of them no longer being Labour MPs and then taking up Labour places. However, Austin and Gapes both said they were booted off because they stood against racism. But it's a bit odd that they left the party but still wanted the party allocated places. It's almost as though absolutely no one in Parliament has any idea what happens when you leave any sort of political group ever. Former Prime Minister and man who in every appearance he makes looks like he's being further corrupted by the ring, Tony Blair, says police are losing the knife crime fighting battle, but that is probably because they're not used to welding blades as it's not part of their training. In global news, the long-awaited Mueller report has been released and it found that, yes, corners are better than rice. Ha! How many have made that joke? Yeah, that's right, everyone everyone that's shit. No, seriously, the report by special counsel Robert Mueller found that the Trump campaign had not conspired with Russia. Because, I mean, let's face it, if you really think about it, how could a man who can't work out how to get an umbrella on a plane do secret collusion? But it hasn't cleared the US president and colostomy bag full of iron brew, Donald Trump, of obstructing justice, which is entirely plausible as he was capable on his UK visit of obstructing the Queen without much effort whatsoever. This is just a summary of the report and Democrats are demanding public access to the full document. But Trump has, of course, claimed all of this is a victory, saying that it was an illegal takedown that failed, despite it being a legal takedown that resulted in jail sentences for five of his colleagues and possibly another two who are awaiting sentencing. But I guess how would he know he is probably unable to see any of the justice for being in the way of it? 
And lastly, back in the UK, leader of the house and mother, Andrea Leadsom, said parents should be able to choose when children are exposed to LGBT issues. So weird that she could be prejudiced against people with different sexual preferences to herself, especially when her kids and everyone else's are still unshielded from seeing the Conservatives fuck everyone and everything. Hey, hey you, how goes it? Are you well? I'm not, it's past midnight. I'm recording this this week, bloody hell. When will people stop the politics? The politics went on for bloody ages tonight and then I recorded this all and um, forgot to actually record it. So, uh, good work. Anyway, um, did you go to the People's Vote March? Did you have fun? Um, I didn't uh, go, that is, or have fun, actually, because it seems that when deciding to be a parent, I missed the small print that said you also have to be a host to different unwelcome germ visitors every week. And last week, the mini Duyeb got some horrible stomach bug gastroenteritis thing, which she then very kindly passed on to us. And the weekend was spent with the blinds down, hoping no one in the outside world would witness the horrors within, as I pleaded for someone to daub a red cross on our door for monks to stand outside warding people away and some sort of exorcist to visit. I swear all I do uh, every week is tell you what illnesses that my family has had, and I realise now that it's almost entirely down to the soft play centre, which appears to just be a squishy Petri dish of horrors. Last time we took the tiny one there, she got hand, foot and mouth, then she got a cold from a friend's party, and then this time, Liberace's vomit fountain. I've decided that she's not allowed to meet any other children ever again, and she'll only socialise with adults from now on, and I fully expect that by the time she's eight, she'll have some great chat about rent prices and parenting, while having an immune system so fragile she could get taken down by the mere suggestion that something flew but i hope that you had fun if you went uh, that's what's very important if you didn't go i fully respect that as well i think there's lots of reasons not to go as well as reasons to go um, i'm still not sure personally that a people's vote is the right way forward for so many reasons uh, mainly that people still keep screwing up votes every time and time again and i really feel that maybe it should be the animals turn now thank you for listening again and hello to new listeners who heard the croaky voice shit from last week and still somehow thought it was worth sticking around for another one um you be good people and as you can hear another croaky voiced one because it's nine minutes past midnight bloody hell bloody hell um how long will this week's episode last topically um i've only recorded it after the votes tonight um so hopefully it will last at least a day and then when this is all over i think look, i think we all need a holiday all of us depending on how it goes i swear the government should pay for all of britain to have a beach trip probably to somewhere in europe i think that would be fitting i've got to do a gig in brussels this week on wednesday and i was genuinely worried something would happen and i'd be trapped there till friday and then i'd have to get smuggled back um the gig is for the european transport workers federation though so to be fair if anyone had the means to get me on board a train or a boat to do it it would be them so it probably would work out um slightly terrified about the show is it's hosting the stage at their big protest for equal pay and treatment and brexit has been so all-consuming that my european politics knowledge is slim to none i know some people in high vis are upset in france and um no that is it's all i know there apparently be about three thousand five thousand people there so how loudly can they boo i mean yeah, yeah, quite loud, quite loud, yeah. Oh, well, anyway, uh, quick admin thing. Um, thanks to Farron, Conal and Hazel for donating to the Kofi this week. I haven't actually bought any coffees for the last few days because what with the gastroenteritis, I thought probably wouldn't help. Um, but I will use them all this week, so very much appreciated. And if you are able to donate towards this show, or at least my usual caffeine intake during it, please donate at Kofi, uh, that's ko-fi.com forward slash parpobro, and that link is in the podcast blurb because I'm good like that. Or you can also donate for 
or no specific beverage choice at patreon.com forward slash parboilbro. And if you can't do that, please review the show. At least that's free. You can do that for free. As many times you like it, think just once. Um, iTunes or Apple Podcast or Tim Apple's Funhouse or whatever you call it. On there, the show is nine reviews away from 150 reviews. So come on, let's all reach a number that doesn't really mean anything other than sounding more satisfying than 141. Does it sound more satisfying? No, uh, 141. It's a nice to say. Should we go one for one? One for one. It's quite fun, isn't it? But 166, that sounds better, right? 166. 166. It's really pleasing, isn't it? So let's get there. Let's get to that number. Um, of course, if you can't do either of those things or you've already done those things but you're just eager for more, then please get on your social medias, your blog sites, your GeoCities homepages and your MSN Messenger web chats and tell other people to get involved with some of those semicolon, closed bracket, smiley face things that all the kids do nowadays. And the only other thing this week is that, as I plugged last week, the How Does This Politics Thing Work Then Kids show that I do um, is at the Pound Arts Centre in Caution this week on Saturday the 30th. I've said this week twice, haven't I? Well, it's this week, this week. Um, and it's on Saturday the 30th, which I think will now have the Brexit bit that it usually has, but just sort of with different dates. Oh, God, who knows? Who knows what will happen by Saturday? But tickets are nearly all gone for that. So if you live in the Caution vicinity, um, it is suitable for children aged 6+. plus. It doesn't have any of the swears that this show does. And it starts at 2pm, uh, and you can get tickets for the Pound Arts website. So please do come along. This week's show uh, has expert in political violence, Kieran Gillespie, on, well, uh, political violence. I mean, it'd be stupid talking to him about something he hasn't got a clue about, so I didn't do that. You know, hey, Kieran, let's chat about pies. I mean, he might know about pies. I'm not going to assume that he doesn't, but you know what I'm saying. Anyway, um, plus there is a look at the collapse of Interserve that you didn't know about. No, you didn't. Don't lie. And, of course, a whole load of stuff on Brexit that I really debated discussing because who knows if any of it will matter. That is the one plus side of Brexit I've really learned to prioritise. Have this, you chumps. The phrase, learn from your mistakes, is meant to mean, you know, that when you fuck up, you're then aware of how not to fuck up in that exact way all over again. But when it comes to the British government, all they seem to learn from their mistakes is how to carry them out in almost exactly the same way again. Like each mistake is some sort of training for a bigger, worse mistake. Like preliminary runs before a marathon that mostly involves you sitting still and crawling a bit. Case in point, just one year after Carillion collapsed, Interserve went into administration ten days ago. If you're like me, that's probably news to you on account of not knowing what Interserve even is. And no, it's not a fetish involving wanting your partner to dress as waiting staff. Interserve is one of the biggest government contractors in charge of £2 billion worth of projects, such as £35 million contract at King George Hospital in London for cleaning, security, meals, waste management and, you know, all the stuff that isn't medical and is really needed to stop doctors and nurses having to wade through four-day-old dinners and a sea of urine in order to get to patients. Though, of course, it would make Casualty a far more interesting show. Obviously, with that many contracts, it means they also employ 45,000 people in the UK, 68,000 people around the world, which, however you look at it, is a lot of people. Go and try. Look at it upside down. Yep, still a lot. How about diagonally? Still loads, told you. So how on earth did the government let yet another outsourcing firm go under? Well, the company ended up with £115 million of debt due to cancelled projects and delays, which makes my credit card look an awful lot better. And a debt reduction rescue plan was put into place, which should have cancelled half the debt and left the shareholders with just 5% between them. But US hedge fund Coltrane, who are nowhere near as jazzy as they sound, and who own just under a third of shares and who don't care about your hospital meals or lakes of piss in intensive care, rebelled against it, which completely wiped out all the small shareholders who'd voted for it. Instead, an accountancy firm called EY, which I guess is pronounced A as they just slide in to take over the administration, they say they've secured all the jobs and the contracts for the time being. But no one's sure how long that time is being, and when it stops being, then oh dear, will time stop being awful? 
But what's super odd, or perhaps not odd and entirely unsurprising, is that despite knowing about InterServe's financial difficulties, the government awarded them £660 million of contracts, including a £66 million deal with the Foreign Office to run facilities management services. Even by December, when the company announced their debt-for-equity rescue deal and basically shouted, hey, we're drowning and absolutely not waving, even then they were awarded another £7 million of public contracts. This is also despite ministers supposedly being so worried about InterServe's failure that they drew up plans to renationalise all their operations. Now look, I don't mean to take this personally, but as a self-employed bod, I've recently had to have two credit checks, hand over bank statements and accountment statements and a note from my current landlord saying I've paid rent every month on time for five years in order to be accepted to rent a new flat. Yet if I'd just said, hey, I'm £800 million in debt and I'm really scared right now, then the government would have seen me as a viable contractor and lumped me with DOSH. I really feel like I'm doing things the wrong way round. The GMB union have said that the whole ordeal shows how obsessed the government become with outsourcing, and in a way, I do understand. I mean, if you had Chris Grayling or Jeremy Hunt on your team, you'd want to delegate work to almost anyone else ever. But it's clear from not only InterServe and Carillion before it, but also Serco with its treatment of asylum seekers, or G4S with its forgetting to turn up half the time, all this outsourcing is not working, and at least some services need to be renationalised in order to ensure their safety. While EY has said that those employed by InterServe will have safe jobs for now, that could change. Meanwhile, the CEO of InterServe, Debbie White, looks set to keep her job and receive a 50% salary boost for last year, with pay packages of a million pounds. Now, you could say the government definitely aren't learning from their mistakes, but the CEO of Carillion, Keith Cochran, only left with a salary of £750,000, so I think they are learning, they're just getting entirely the wrong lesson, and I'd very much like to point out that mistake to them, but I'm concerned that if they learn from it, just what it might lead to. When I was younger, it was very fun to point your hand joints at people and make them roar before shouting, they're terrorists, but I'm reckoning that's the only time that terrorism can ever be remotely fun. The disturbing shooting at two mosques in Christchurch, New Zealand just over a week ago by a white supremacist raised a lot of questions about terrorism that were being asked before, but not many people were really listening. What is causing the rise in fascism, asked all the newspapers who'd plastered anti-immigration statements all over their front pages for years. Is far-right white supremacist terrorism now more of a threat than Islamic terrorism, said large chunks of the media before referring to the gunman as angel-haired and ignoring all the victims? And is it all social media's fault, as Facebook allowed the killer to stream the murders live, asked the Mail and the Mirror before they popped it up on their websites, just in case you missed it and needed something fun to view with your tea? That's a tricky question though, really, because while Twitter and Facebook definitely seem to be online fascist nurseries, they're also the only platforms where you can actively tell them to fuck off outside of a march. But despite warnings and concerns about all those things from people in the know for many years, those are still very valid and important questions, as is wondering if we're now in times of exceptional political violence, whether that's terrorist attacks or death threats to MPs, or me just wanting to smash my telly in every time I hear Theresa May make a completely pointless speech. Is it all down to political discourse, or would Twitter adding a dislike button really change things? Most importantly, how do we stop this from happening again and again for the sake of the victims? And of course, my TV. This week I asked those questions to Kieran Gillespie, a teaching fellow at the University of Surrey who specialises in international politics and security, and as part of that, terrorism and political violence. I saw him being very good about it all on Channel 4 News for all of about 30 seconds and I contacted him to see if he'd be happy talking to me for a much longer time so that, you know, he'd actually be allowed to explain things. Luckily, Kieran managed to fit in a chat between lectures and flying off to a conference in Canada and I hope that you'll find this as engaging and thought-provoking as I did. Still though, terrorists. It's pretty, it's pretty good, isn't it? It's pretty funny. Terrorists. 
Okay, so uh, first question. Um, it's, it's one that I know has been flying around a lot at the moment um, after the, the horrific New Zealand uh, terrorist attack where the killer sort of live-streamed um, the, the, the uh, shooting. Um, is social media, in your opinion, Kieran, um, aiding a rise in terrorism and the radicalisation of terrorists? Well, it's, it's a very good question. I think it's the question that's been on everyone's lips this week. Um, I've been asked it a couple of times. I don't, I don't think that there's a satisfactory kind of yes or no answer, uh, you know, what's, which is the immediate, like, academic response to anything like this is to <laughs> qualify to, to, to the nth degree anything that anyone says about it. Because, um, and unfortunately, there's a reason for it, because, you know, the more that you actually delve into the, the academic realm of the study of, of terrorism, political violence, radicalization, you find that the, the, the boundaries for definitions of things are very murky, very ambiguous. Um, and more than that, the, the causal processes in, in violence saying one thing leads to another are extremely contentious and, 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 and very difficult to prove. Um, that being said, uh, I mean, it, it would be my position that I don't think that social media uh, creates anything um, that wasn't there already or that, that uh, in terms of radicalization um, isn't, isn't, isn't creating something that, that didn't exist in mainstream political discourse previously. Um, because, and we, and we know this in relation to um, acts of terrorism by white supremacists because that kind of terrorism predates the internet, right? So in any kind of foundational sense, you know, it's not the case of, um, you know, white men were all fine until the, until YouTube came along and then something really strange happened. And, and, you know, we started to get very funny ideas about, um, using political violence on, on people of other races, because clearly history tells us that is not true. Um, what what it can be is 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 to to augment or alter processes of radicalization in ways that maybe we didn't expect or that are you know difficult to understand. Um, but but definitely my my kind of strong response to this question, either from students or from the media this week, has been to say, you know, it's it's comforting to to tell ourselves that. Platforms like YouTube or Facebook or even, you know, the dark corners of the Internet like 8chan, 4chan are doing doing something to, to, to young white men that, 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 you know, we don't understand um, when actually all we need to do is look at mainstream political discourse in the last few years to see that this is, you know, this is not something that we, you know, that, that is only to do with young people. And it's certainly not something only to do with the internet. This is this, this kind of heavy Islamophobic, anti-immigrant, um, misogynist, uh, political discourse has been legitimated in a, in, a, in a lot of mainstream areas. Um, you know, these two things are interacting with each other, if anything, you know, it's certainly not that, that, that the online space is creating them. 
sure. I mean, it's it's something. I mean, I'm, I've been very aware of kind of anti-Islamic uh, sentiment in um, in in a lot of uh, you know um, political speeches, a lot of political policies for quite some time, and pretty pretty much since sort of nine eleven. I think it's it's kind of exacerbated. Um, and uh, but but what I I have become aware of, I think, um, is uh, you know if, if in terms of the kind of extremist uh, Islamic groups, I've heard a lot of ISIS recruitment is now done online through various Instagram messaging or, or WhatsApp groups mm. or things. And obviously, as I said, with the New Zealand attacks, we had the, the Facebook video. So even if social media isn't the cause, I mean, it must now aid, uh, um, aud- you know, in reaching audiences far more than, or far greater than than these uh, kind of radicalist groups could do before. Yeah, no, I, I, I mean, I do agree with that in terms of like, as so as a, as a facilitation of messaging, um, certainly, I mean, in the, in terms of formal recruitment for, um, uh, extremist organizations, Islamic militancy and things like that, you know, like there is, the platforms do provide, uh, a kind of functional bridge between audiences separated by large spaces. Um, and yeah, that, that's, that is, that is reality. Like the, the, you know, there's a huge amount of discussion about you know ISIS's the, the the quality, the quantity of ISIS's online kind of political um, presence uh, in recent years. Um, again, there's there's this question about um, the mainstream impact of this. You know, like we to 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 what extent you attribute radicalization in you know young Muslim men and women going to Syria to, to fight with ISIS um, in the last year is that, you know, again, that everything was normal until they came across a website um, or read a copy of ISIS's magazine, De Bic or something, and and then all of a sudden you're radicalized. Um, this is this is something that's interesting enough, you know, it's something you come across a lot in the uh, security services reaction to something like 7-7, the 7-7 bomb attacks, the reports that kind of come out in relation to radicalization um, by a commission of uh, police chief commissioners in that time. And in the language there, you see this idea that I think does 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 have kind of deep roots in security sector responses to terrorism. The idea that it's a poisonous ideology. Any kind of, any kind of terrorist radicalization is, is to do with a poisonous ideology and that, you know, Otherwise, normal people encounter it, and then you get brainwashed, and then all of a sudden, you know, you're you're in Syria fighting with ISIS. And I, I, I don't think that that's how these processes work. There's a much deeper kind of uh, societal uh, causal process that I'm not sure we even really understand yet fully. But like certainly the researchers indicate, you know, this is this is something to do with, you know, how you are how you perceive yourself in, in a society. So it's, you know, it's much more broadly about the the politics of of the society that you find yourself in, whether that's in the UK or France or um, in Syria, it's, it's, it's about your perception of what's politically achievable, what, what your, what, what things are, you know, what things are impacting your own perceptions of your security, your sovereignty. Um, And, and those are the kind of things that act again, in conjunction with slick, radicalizing media online um to to create people who 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 are capable of carrying out acts of tremendous violence 
Yes, yeah, it's, it's fascinating. I, I, I'm, there was a, I, I'm plugging now another podcast on my podcast, which is a weird thing to do, but there was a fantastic New York Times podcast called Caliphate, which I, I don't know if you've listened to or aware of. Um, I haven't, I haven't heard it, but I've heard very, very, very good things about it. So I, I will definitely. It is. Yeah. Uh, it, yeah, it's incredible. Again, I'm now selling someone else's podcast on mine, but there you go. It's, it's properly incredible and just fantastic investigative journalism. And, and a lot of the very interesting thing on there was that, you know, she interviews people who have, who uh, uh, were in ISIS and have now left. And, and a lot of them middle class and felt very disillusioned at the state of things and the way in which Middle Eastern countries were treated. And then there are people in Middle Eastern countries who had horrific intervention by US soldiers and that turned them twice and things like that. And I wondered if um, looking now at white supremacism, which is on the rise, are we seeing a rise in that because of, you know, austerity and Brexit and various other things that have come in in the same way that a new IRA seems to have surfaced after all the issues in Ireland now because of Brexit? Are we have we now got these as bigger concerns because of the way that political discourse has changed? Yeah, well, I, I think, again, the you know, the discourse probably reflects aspects of, of, of social reality. Um, like one thing I tend to think about in these situations is that you know there's there's this question of, of 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 what what is happening in in particularly in Western society if we're talking about you know the radicalization in young white men um, that uh, you know is attributable to to an interaction between social factors and and questions of identity and. I think a, a lot of the time when we talk about things like terrorism and political violence, you know, this is the hardcore edge of security, right? This is this is guns and bombs. This is the state, you know, responses to this. You know, it's intelligence, and you know, it's the it's the you know the glamorous kind of world of of espionage we see on TV and stuff. And, and when you start talking about things like identity, um, people can sometimes roll their eyes and just be like, "Yeah, okay," or you're like saying, "I'm using a feminist analysis to kind of." you know, review this kind of thing. You know, people roll their eyes and go like, that's kind of wishy-washy stuff. But actually, you know, I think it's it, it's, it's much more kind of a, a mainstream consideration than, than, than people tend to think. Um, you know, it was in the in the 80s and 90s, you know, the, the, the hardcore kind of um, intelligence service kind of response of, of, to radicalization was to look at places, you know, to look in places like Yemen and Egypt and Algeria and uh, you know, places all across the Middle East and say, you know, these places are hotbeds for radicalization because you have large, large population of young men who have been locked out of the political process because, you know, they don't have representation. They live in autocracies, you know, in many cases, autocracies supported by the West. Um, and, they don't have much in the in way of prospects. The economies are stagnant. To, you know, there's there's not much chance of them developing a materially uh, improved way of life, and they are very angry. Now, I think that you can quite easily use that as a description for quite a lot of populations in the Western world as well today, right? You're to, you know, the, talking about this the disillusioned. Um, people with, you know, feeling increasingly desperate and feeling increasingly locked out of political processes that are controlled by uh, an unassailable elite um, and feeling very angry. And I think that anger has expressed itself in a whole range of different pot political potentialities. People are, some people are organizing, some people are fighting back in, 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 in ways that challenge um, elite consensus politics and challenge 
a reductive uh, and racist discourse, but other people are falling in the other way and becoming more extreme in, in a kind of uh, you know, racist, misogynist backlash as well. And you're seeing that, I think, very, very clearly expressed in something like Christchurch. But, you know, it's there's been incidents all along the way from Elliot Roger and Santa Barbara's kind of claimed incel uprising to, to Dylan Roof and uh, in Charlottesville. You know, there's, there's these cases of men who are uh, feel entitled by writ of their identity to, to, to both access to women and a dominant position in society. And the fact that these things, you know, in a, in a post me Too post, um, uh, black lives matter kind of online political context feel that their position as dominant just by right of their identity is, is under threat and they're very angry about that and I think that that's that's quite dangerous I was going to say I, I don't think we had to put that I've, I've often seen it come up on social media and lots of um, often male commentators dismiss it but it is nearly always men and men it seems to be the issue is that is there a reason for that is it just that you know uh, with a, a world that's sort of a very patriarchal society if men feel threatened they feel like they're going to lose everything what's, what's the, the reason for that um, well I mean that's the, the, you know this is one of the the, the core kind of interest of things like feminist security studies and and, and I think the, the, the incredible utility of using those lenses. I actually had this, you know, had students debating this this week. Obviously, it's very, you know, it's a motive issue and, and people want to talk about it and had students talk about it. And I, I did have a student, you know, mention this week, you know, that, that you know, and I, I think in a way they are tr- very much trying to express a, a uh, you know, a... a, a a reflection on what it means to be male by saying, you know, men are aggressive, men are, men are, you know, we are, that's just the kind of the biological nature of us that, you know, we are kind of hunter gatherers by, by design. And, 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 you know, so it's when we get backed into a corner, we act aggressively and this kind of thing. And I think, you know, that while that, that maybe that sounds like a kind of self-critical reflection um, it's it's a kind of a biological determinist argument that I think has been pretty pretty you know as far as far as certainly a lot of um, uh, social political academic scholarship on the on the subject is being pr- pretty pretty roundly uh, dismissed in, in 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 recent years um, in recent decades actually all following on from work like Judith Butler's uh, on you know the performance of masculinity we can we kind of understand that you know, our gender, our, what it means to be masculine is, is something that's a socially constructed, uh, process, right? It's what it means to be masculine is going to differ depending on whereabouts in the world you live. It's going to differ, pretend, you know, in like specifics of your community, it, it differs at different times. Um, you know, so what it means to be masculine today is something different from what it meant to be masculine 20 years ago. There are some consistent threads, um, but that's because you know the the, the 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 politics and the cultural expectations of what it means to perform male identity are very strong, um, and they're they're quite resilient. So you have very consistent ideas about it's 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 men's responsibility to perform violence in 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 acts of production of security, right? So if men are expected to to be the providers of security. It's why we pay cops and robbers and cowboys and Indians and soldiers and stuff from a very young age, we're kind of socialized into this idea that it's our, our responsibility to kind of use violence to 
to protect things that 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 are you know whether it's our family or our societies, that are our nations um, that that are important to us. And I think you take that into a context where, for you know, twenty odd years now, um, the mainstream media has been telling us uh, and telling men that you know, in particular, that these this religions such as Islam pose an existential threat to the continued existence of your society. And this is not an exaggeration. This is, you know, George Bush coming out after 9-11 and saying they hate us, they hate our freedom, they hate our democracy, you know, they want to take us back to a kind of barbarous age. Um, you know, it, it, it's them and us, you know, it's, it's you know, classic kind of Orientalist framework. Um, you know, it, we, we can all say, oh, yeah, we well, you know, we hear that and you know, we we're we're above that, or we can we can kind of understand that that's just politics and yada yada yada. But I think that's been a constant background noise of the the age of the war on terror. Um, to 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 have this message reiterated again and again and again that you know we all know that you know we're in a a, a, a state of real flux in in political reality at the moment globally. Um, the entire project of globalization at, at times feels like it's, you know, it's, it's, it's juddering and, and, and not quite clear about what, what its future is. So in the midst of all this flux, we have men who have, who, who perceive, who have been told about this existential threat. And I think it's quite easily to, to attribute these things together, to, to tie these things together, that the, the problems in our society are because of this, this, this generation long battle that we're having with the Oriental other. And, and, and it's, you know, perhaps unsurprising that 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 the aggression and violence is a is a response to that. But I think you know it's unsurprising because precisely because what I'm saying is that it's been mainstreamed, and and whether we like it or not, you know, it has been part of the mainstream discourse. We we can excuse it. We can say, oh, it was you know the context of 9/11. But you know, as I said to my incoming students this year who are like 18 years old, you know, they don't know, an, they don't know a non-war on terror reality. They're born into it. Uh, this, I, I, I've tried to think it's really interesting to try and explain to them that things weren't always like this. And they don't like, they can read up, they can read textbooks, they can read history that tells them that that's not the case, but that's no substitute for the lived experience. Their lived experience is the war on terror. And that's for for those of us who uh, I'm not sure exactly how old you are, Turner, but I can I can remember. Yeah, old enough. Yeah. <laughs> I remember I remember Nirvana and Pearl Jam and and uh, you know like shell suits yeah. in the the 90s and stuff. You know, I remember another context. I remember when the the, the even as a child, I can remember a, a a meta political discussion about things like the, the global village, the shrinking of of, of time and space, uh, the communications revolution. It's kind of you know, an optimism, you know, in, in, in political discourse that I think is, 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 you know, has been completely, it's not something that they're familiar with. It's certainly the kind of younger generation. Yes, that's fascinating. I hadn't thought of that. There are people now that have lived uh, only in, in a war on terror era. And I, um, it, it's very interesting because I, I, uh, I, I'm, I'm 38, so I, I was very much grew up in the 90s. And I think my 
childhood yeah. was uh well in fact i you know i've always lived in london so there was a lot of um terrorism from uh ira uh that happened in my area and that was yeah. the the kind of uh you know the mainstream news is focus on terror and then of course it all changed in in 2001 as well and i i think w- what i'm finding interesting now um is that you know, in those times, say, for the IRA had a very uh, distinct political motive. Um, the war on terror, as shady as it is now, looking back at it at the time, it seemed to have a distinct political motive, the the terrorism about both the war on it, supposedly, whether you agreed with it or not. We're now in a situation where, like, Britain's divided already. <laughs> um, the US has got kind of democratic issues. A lot of the Western world has. France has got the Gillette Jeans and, you know, uh, unhappiness with Macron. Does, does terrorism still hold political power in a Western world that's kind of suffering from those democratic crises? I mean, New Zealand have taken quite decisive action, but we're seeing in the States it's not really changing anything. You know, does that kind of change the stance of terrorism or, or how it works? Um, it's, I suppose it's a very, yeah, it's a, I mean, do you, do you mean that, like, do, do those situations, like, I mean, you're, you're talking, you're talking about these kind of massive cleavages in Western society, right? Like where these, 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 these massive points of, of, of discontent, of, of, of anger, of, of serious, um, you know, this perhaps a, you know, a battle between, cosmopolitan liberal elite identities versus more kind of conservative nativist kind of or even ethno-nationalist maybe perspectives or you know very complicated kind of you know not even left and right necessarily kind of um contentions but you know it's i don't i don't i don't see like organized I see, I see violence within all of these things, right? Like I see, I, I see a, and again, you know, sometimes that that's kind of coming from the the, the mainstream, you know, that's the, the state versus like the gilets jaunes thing, you know, obviously that the, the identity of the gilets jaunes thing in terms of the politics of it very probably reflect really well that completely ambiguous, um, you know, often contrary political kind of pull of, of, of just anger, just resentment at the, at the at current circumstances, then you're seeing this, you know, very, very violent reaction by the state um, in, in, in that, um, in that response as well. Um, you, you, the, the Black Lives Matter thing, you know, has just been quite incredible in terms of seeing what the, the state kind of reaction to push back from the black community in the, in, in America um, despite, you know, I think very extremely well, um, publicized, you know, cases and, and, and a general narrative now, um, it's still quite, quite shocking to see, uh, continuing evidence, you know, week in, week out of, of, of police brutality there. Um, so I think, I think there are these cleavages in society and I think that these, these cleavages between society and the state and there's violence around all of it, but what extent you know terrorism as a political tactic is kind of you know threatens to establish itself in those contexts i don't really know 
A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And we'll be back with Kieran in a minute, but first, the inevitable. Here we are, and no longer will the UK be Brexiting on March the 29th at 11pm. Instead, it'll probably be leaving on April the 12th at 11pm, I guess, on the basis that May doesn't ever get a deal or her deal or whatever deal through, which isn't going to happen this week because there's now no meaningful vote. Or we might be leaving on May 22nd, also at 11pm. No one's really pointing that bit out. If everyone does vote for May's deal or an alternative deal is found, like, I don't know, an almond Brexit or a soy Brexit or an oat Brexit, or I guess May is carted off in some sort of Hannibal Lecter to style straitjacket hod carrier contraption and a chance that a sensible conversation might actually happen. So, no plan, no real time to do anything about it, some terrible plan or deus ex machina like, hey, everyone gets defeated by bacteria or something, and then very slightly more time to not do enough about it. Does this rule out a no deal? No, that can still happen after April the 12th, and all it means is that German-owned company Wepper can stockpile slightly more toilet paper for when the shit hits. Does it mean that MPs have to vote for whatever May's deal will end up being? No, but in fact MPs winning the vote on Letwin's amendment tonight means that there'll be indicative votes on Wednesday on what MPs might back so that May can go to the EU with something new that could be worked on. Or something major that would need a ton of work and then the EU may approve a much longer extension but that would make the Conservative Brexiteers cry their baby pants because it'll be like their nanny wouldn't allow them a milk feed on their birthday like she always does and they don't know how they'd cope. Of course, the EU could also go no sod off, but, you know, in European or whatever they speak, and then, bam, no deal all over again. Then, of course, there's all the other possibilities of another referendum or a general election or a no-confidence vote or everyone eating experimental three-course chewing gum meals and inflating like a giant blueberry, rendering Parliament inactive. And, of course, all of those could go wrong, and then, bam, no deal all up in your grill. It's like snakes and ladders, except all the ladders haven't passed EU health and safety regulation tests, and so they lead to snakes anyway. Obviously, there's now a pretty big voice for no Brexit at all, which you'd hope in a decent democracy with a leader who cared what the people thought would make a difference. 111 out of 121 polls and more than 300,000 people that have been taken since the start of 2018 have all favoured remaining in the EU over leaving. Seven were tied 50-50 and only three were majority leave. 
In fact, things started to change on polls towards favouring Remain from around July 2017, which is really odd because not much happened that month politically, except shaved rock hopper penguin Vince Cable became leader of the Liberal Democrats. Whoa, whoa. You don't think that Vince has more power than we could possibly imagine? <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm actually just guessing that it's probably most people got more vitamin D than normal and stopped feeling so pissy. But who actually knows? Then, of course, this past week, there's now been the petition to revoke Article 50, which has reached over 5 million signatures, and the People's Vote March has had over a million. So that's a considerable amount showing resistance to the idea of Brexit at all, let alone a hard one. Revoking is, of course, a sensible idea, even if you're a Brexiteer, as that would mean the Article 50 time limit is removed and maybe a more sensible plan could be made over a longer amount of time without all of the bonkers promises. But the European Court of Justice did rule that an Article 50 revocation would be unequivocal and unconditional, which sounds a lot like if you go back on it, you can never leave. It doesn't sound very democratic for a democratic union, though, does it? Maybe, though, it's just the EU's way of making sure the UK actually sticks to something. You sort of think that after all this, they'd be so miffed that we'd come back, they'd have to give us a way to sod off again. Though now we've got the largest pro-Europe public protest in the continent, so it's possible that that was the post-breakup makeup that will make things OK again. Then, though, if we did revoke, how would you appease the side of the country you did vote leave and still want to? It won't work simply to run around shouting, you won, then you lost because you hadn't planned the winning. Get over it. Ah, it's all so tricky. And will May give a shit about any of this? Well, the petition has had over 100,000 signatures, which means it'll be debated in Parliament, though I assume the possibility of revoking will be debated anyway, but having, you know, just a bit more than that signatures should at least make it be noticed. As should the march, although many marching on that were asking for a variety of outcomes from people's vote to revoking Article 50 overall, and someone who had a banner about being angry that Theresa May might stop her dog from going skiing. But we have Theresa May as Prime Minister who wouldn't listen to a fire alarm if she decided there wasn't a fire, even if her shoes were alight at the time. Yes, it's also very worth pointing out that the opposition aren't really backing a people's vote or revoking Article 50 yet, though they have said that they might do if, you know, there's really no other options and the Labour idea of Brexit is definitely, definitely unable to happen. You know, like how it's constantly been rejected by Parliament, but, you know, somehow more definitely than that. Like the very words that they might need to use for it are singed from all human memory and all who try to work out what it was receive an electric shock of large proportions. Only then they may back a second referendum or something else, but probably something else and that's only once they've discussed it among themselves so all their members and leadership can all say different things when interviewed one thing that may make a difference although probably not for some years and by which time all the damage will be done and everyone involved will be dead or living in a tax haven is a public inquiry which apparently the civil service are already preparing for you see that's why it's pointless mps blaming the civil service for anything to do with brexit they're already planning for a public inquiry into it that may not happen for ages of course they'd have sorted out brexit properly if left to it there's some support for it, not just from the civil service, but also conservative peers, EU officials and from within the Commons, with quotes of various backers comparing it to having their own version of Chilcot for Brexit. Which does, of course, mean that it could be pretty damning, but that won't stop the Prime Minister responsible from still earning lots of money elsewhere and regularly popping up on politics shows to annoy everyone by being undeservedly smug. The inquiry would be about if the right planning was made, spoiler, no. The right advice given, spoiler, no. About May's strict red lines that have hindered negotiating abilities and, of course, it would have to look into the vast amounts of legal cases made against the campaigns. 
I mean, just looking through, the mainly Conservative-backed official leave campaign group Vote Leave was fined £61,000 by the Electoral Commission in 2018 for overspending, and then just last week, the Information Commissioner's Office fined them another forty grand for sending out nearly 200,000 unsolicited texts, aka the other kind of dick pic. Then again, the Labour Leave campaign, an offshoot of Vote Leave, was fined nine grand for failing to accurately register non-cash donations. Then the Leave.eu campaign, which isn't the official one, backed by human garbage compactor Aaron Banks, were fined £70,000 in May 2018 for failing to report spending, then another £120,000 in February last year for data breaches. So that's £110,000 of fines for the Vote Leave campaign for illegal electoral activity and £190,000 for Leave.eu. Oh, and the Britain Stronger in Europe got fined £1,250 last year for failing to deliver an accurate spending return. But basically, there's a whole shitload of doing things wrongly, and at no point has anyone official been remotely bothered. But come a public inquiry, oh, that could be pretty damaging for all the careers they'll no longer have, because they'll all be retired, and really damaging to that reputation they won't need, because they'll still be on the telly all the time. Yeah, the people will win eventually, just after a lot of losing, and then still no real winning. Oh, God, make it stop. Where are you, bacteria? Where the hell are you? And now, back to Kieran. I might have, I may have misunderstood your question there, if you want to clarify. Well, no, no, not at all. I, it's more like I was sort of thinking, um, I was reminded today of, of the, the awful murder of Joe Cox yes, uh, yeah. just over two and a bit years ago now, or I think a bit more, and, you know, and how actually that didn't then make any difference to the vote, or particularly, it was almost, I think, with, with news constantly changing and updating it, I don't know if it did anything for either, you know, for, for either the attacker's cause or Joe Cox's cause. You know, it, it's and, – and I feel like, again, in America, we're having all these kind of um, violent shootings and it doesn't seem to change anything or do anything. Whereas previously, I would have thought that terrorist attacks had a – uh, a political motive to to either sway people to their cause or or alternatively you know rally people against it. I, I just wonder if it was having if any if any of it has the same effect anymore when everything is in chaos. That was my sort of uh, question, really. Well, I mean, I, I suppose perhaps we we you know we all we always think our own immediate context is somehow different to, to any other time. Um, you know, you if yeah, as you say, you grew up in in in, in London. In the 80s and 90s, so you know, you knew about the chaos of, of, of terrorism, political violence. I grew up in in a place called Straban, in just a mile from the border in Northern Ireland um, throughout the, the 80s, and you know it's weird, right? Like I was talking about this, like people growing up with the norms of the war on terror. Like I grew up in that situation, thought it was completely normal. <laughs> so and 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 clearly it wasn't. You know, it was a highly securitized uh, environment. Um, you know, it's a kind of quasi war zone, um, but yeah, you 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 tend to think of now as different, or now as some kind of exceptional time, and and perhaps it is, but you know, certainly in a, in a global context. I think you know the point on Joe Cox is is um, you know an interesting one. Like clearly, in the wake of Theresa May's speech uh, the other night, which is quite, I think everyone found quite bizarre. Um, and certainly, you know, and again, I sympathize with MPs who found that actually quite scary. That they, they felt like that was almost like a call to arms by the public against them. Um, you know, and you know, I'm sure a lot of them are remembering what happened to Joe Cox. I mean, we could also forget somebody. You know, like a guy tried to attack Jeremy Corbyn at one point outside a mosque, and and you know, like these these things are are happening. 
I, I think in that sense, I mean, those, those are, those are reflection that's very far right politics is, exist in this country. I think there's, there's all the, they're kind of referred to in these kind of cryptic terms about people taking to the streets if, uh, if and, and there being violence if some, if the, if the Brexit um, outcome isn't what, you know, the, the, the referendum kind of dictated or indicated it would be as in, in terms of how we're interpreting that. Um, but that is to say, I think really more than, than saying something about terrorism per se, it's saying that, you know, fascism and the far right, which is an extreme, you know, has always been a historically violent actor in British politics. And that's not something new, um, is, is, is here, right. It's in the background. It's in all this stuff about Tommy Robinson and, you know, kind of groups that, you know, the, was it the football lads Alliance, you know, like I've been to one of like the counter demos for those guys in London, you know, they, they turn up in numbers, you know, it's like maybe only a few hundred, um, but they, they, they have numbers and they're willing to fight in the streets like that kind of, you know, they're willing to do violence. Um, they're pretty radical actors. Um, you know, we, we, we don't call that terrorism per se, but you know, they are, they're, they're violent extremist political actors who are, who are willing to go on the streets and court when the cause and the timing is right. And that is, yes, I think that's something we should be really worried about. I mean, it, it, it does not. And I think this goes back to a broader point, that perhaps is relevant to this whole discussion. It does not seem to be something that we tend to think about as being, that's what, what, what a form of terrorism is a political terrorism is in this, in this country. We, you know, we tend terrorism is, by writ of the, the kind of discourse of the age of the war on terror is generally speaking something done by them to us, whoever them is. It's an other that we define it as even when it comes from within our own communities as well, that's something from outside. That's some outside influence. That's not something to do with our society when clearly, clearly it is. Is that, I mean, it's, yeah, it's being sort of uh, more and more clear that, that you know, uh, that far-right uh, fascism has been very much normalised by mainstream media. Um, you know, I think on the night of the New Zealand terror attacks, Newsnight interviewed uh, a leader of a far-right British group, which is a very bizarre thing to do. Um, yeah. Obviously, the, the way in which New Zealand have dealt with it, and, and Jacinda Ardern, um, she's kind of said that they're not, she doesn't want to name the attacker, doesn't want to glorify them. Do you think that could be the beginning of a, a change in understanding how to deal with these events or, you know, because it really, it feels like at what point do you think it will, it will get to before kind of media understands that maybe we need to look at things differently? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think, I think perhaps that is the, the, the question of ultimate importance here. And, you know, like, I say, like I realize I say the media a lot and I talk about it like it's some homogenous thing. It's some, and again, it kind of like some other and stuff like, but I participate in it. You participate in it, you know, like we, we you know, it's a part of public discourse. Right. Um, and there, but there are, there are respecting that there are power uh, hierarchies within that system and, and, and particular institutions and voices have more weight than others and have a better need to shape that discourse. You know, I think what happened with the BBC, um, the news and everything. I mean, without without wanting to put too fine a point on it, I, I found that to be in disgraceful taste. I, I really did. I, th- I thought it was, and and unfortunately, it reflects. Um, to me, to me, it's 
it's like that 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 is I know I know what you're saying uh, about New Zealand's prime minister and, and 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 I think a lot of there's always a kind of reaction to this that is uh, you know going back to the days of like you know uh, Obama kind of weeping after the, the 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 Sandy Hook shootings and stuff it was like we must be better than this we must go above we must you know we we are our societies can persevere and kind of bring out the best in us and stuff. But on the flip side, you see this thing with 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 Newsnight, and to me, that that is the thing that tells you actually we are we are quite incapable in within the current kind of structures of how we think about things like political violence, and, and indeed structural violence like racism um, that 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 produces it. We are, we are quite incapable of of reflecting on how power and the media kind of interact to produce narratives that that that. That, that cause this stuff, how, you know, the political and economic structures of our society kind of produce it. You know, it's, it's, it's fine to say very nice things that, you know, kind of quasi West wing statements of he shall not be named and you know, he did not define us or, or, you know, we're better than this, this kind of stuff. But, you know, when you still think about something like white supremacist, you know, Nazi violence, executing, um, Muslim, Muslim people on Friday prayers in the most vulnerable moment, refugees fleeing conflicts, and and your 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 kind of instinctual reaction is to balance that with you know to to allow space for people to express legitimate concerns, and I'm doing my bony ears here that you can't see, um, or, or you know to talk about their grievances, even even if only to to dismiss them, surely, uh, and and to have people ridicule them, um, it it doesn't, you know, that's it's legitimating it, and and you know, I, I, I it was the same, I, I I noticed the same thing on the Friday morning. I was wanted a break from the news. I listened to um, BBC Radio Six, which is a fabulous radio station, my favorite, and listened to music. The music's interrupted by a news bulletin. The bulletin is the, the New Zealand's prime minister announcing that she wants, she's interested in pursuing a, a gun control uh, uh, crackdown on the, kind of the sale of the, the, the arms involved in the attack. Um, she speaks briefly for about you know, 10 seconds or whatever it is of the, the bulletin, and then the 10 seconds is balanced by uh, a gun lobbyist talking about not doing anything rash in, in response to this. This, this event. So, I mean, it's not an, you know, this is not an isolated, the thing that happened with Newsnight is no, no way isolated. This is, and I think people, you know, Brexit is probably less of my kind of interest area in terms of a, as a, as a political kind of, um, you know, the thing that you, you really want to talk about a lot. Um, I kind of try to take a step back from that, but, you know, I, I think that's a question. That's a thing that people have been angry about in terms of that, you know, that, that things about evidence have to be balanced by people having beliefs about things, you know, that, 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 that you're not always weighing two equal things. I mean, it's, in my case, it's something I get really angry about because I see it happening with things like climate change. You know, you have to balance somebody saying that you, that, that, you know, we have 12 years to do something of any substance to have any, any chance of, of basically maintaining that habitable world. Um, and then that's balanced against somebody saying again, Oh, let's not be too rash here, because you know we don't really know what we know, and and this kind of thing. I, 
that's all a long way of saying going back to the point that I'm not sure we have this the capacity to to really to, to you know to deal with with underlying causes here because we feel the need we 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 feel this instinctual need to say everything has balance everything every story has two sides you know like that, that I think that that unfortunately that's a norm that's like crept into the the nature of of political journalism in in, in a lot of contexts and 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 that has an extremely the effect of being extremely conservative and being extremely restrictive in terms of, you know, without being too academic, you know, emancipatory potentialities, you know, like that there isn't, it locks us into, to, a, to a journey that we, that we find it incredibly hard to, to get out of because it's hard to generate a political narrative that says, no, look, this is just wrong. You know, this is just, there is no excuse for this. There is no there's no grievance to be addressed here, and if it is, it's something to do with uh, uh, politics and society that we need to have a very serious conversation about. So, uh, this is the case with nearly every interview I've done on this podcast for the last three years. Uh, it, it, you sort of end up going, oh, wow, things are quite bleak. Um, is, there, <laughs> is there any way that you would see, you know... Uh, is it's it's obviously a very uh, tricky situation. There's a lot of reasons for political violence at the moment. Is is there anything that you you think could be done to minimise it or should be done? I mean, social media regulations is is one of the the, the things that keeps coming up, which, as we discussed earlier, doesn't seem like it would really do anything other than infuriate people and possibly sort of lead to a more authoritarian atmosphere. Um, what would your you know from all your studies? Is there anything you you could see happening that may reduce political violence in the future? Hmm. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I mean, I like it's a big question. Sorry, <laughs> it's a lot. Yeah, it is. It's, it's a very big question. Um, but you know, it's, it's very worth trying to, to to engage with it. I mean, it's a big question. Therefore, you have to kind of talk big. And you know, I I, I do think as a as a society, you know, we we never escape the financial crisis. Right. Like that's to me, that's what that this, you know, a lot of this, like I'm, you know, like kind of a lefty. So I turn to, you know, I, I kind of look at the material basis of society as much as I look at like things like identity as well. But the, you know, we have been squeezed. Right. You know, the, the I, I don't think it's um, it's 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 fairly obvious to people, I think, that, you know, we've 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 had a very difficult few years in this country in the context of austerity. Um, you know, we, you, you walk down the street in London, you know, you, you kind of understand that like I pay, you know, whatever money I have goes into like usually paying off like a, the, the rent of like a mortgage of some guy who owns like a, a several properties. Um, I'm, you know, I'm scraping to try and get by if, you know, if you've got a family, you know, you're trying to provide for them incredibly desperate, like. Um, to 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 just kind of scratch out a living, and and in the meantime, you're like looking around you, and you're seeing these like glass temples and spires reaching up into the sky, and that are like clearly the result of this very 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 disaggregated existence. And this is like very very high, uh, deeply a hierarchical um, separation between us and what what what's the richest people in society have, you know, to, without being too crass and the occupy slogan the you know the 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 one percent and the rest of us and it's not even the one percent right it's like the not point not not one percent um and and i feel like that is that's just always going to create a huge resentment right like there's a there's a there's an anger there that that people have that they don't even know probably don't even know they have or they don't know how to express it um 
and, and I, 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 I do think that on my, until there's, you know, we, 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 we know that like this stuff about Brexit is probably a, I mean, it's a massive distraction to the, the, all sorts of things that we need as a society to start engaging with immediately. Things like climate change, things like the, the, you know automation, um, the fact, you know the the the, the 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 massive changes in technology that, that to society that technology is is producing, which which should be emancipatory, that should be freeing us to do things to have better lives, and but clearly are not. And we're, we're I I just don't see us engaging with these things at all. You know, we're, we're, and, and, and to me, this kind of goes back to this whole question about media's framing of, of crisis and you know, this, you know, the, 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 the Westminster bubble of media, media. So it is, I, I think to a certain degree is obsessed with something like Brexit because it, it's an unsolvable puzzle that you can just have, you know, it, just never ending content about a story that just never stops. Um, and they all say that they hate it, but they, you know, but they also kind of obsess over it. Whereas, you know, if we we have bigger problems, you know, it, like, and I know everyone's the you know, Brexit is like, well, it's the ultimate problem because we can't do anything on like a mess if that ends up being a disaster or whatever. But but you know, it seems like every society, every Western society, is plagued by their own Brexit thing, the thing that's stopping them from engaging meaningfully in the things that would actually change our lives for the better. Um, and at some point you have to say that, well, that's not, it's not really about any individual political thing. It's about a, it's, it, this is about the structures of power within our societies. So, so the short answer is, I think we need to challenge those structures. We need to, we need to, we need to get better at, at, at pushing back against, you know, the, the, the framing of what is politically possible, you know, of, you know, news night telling us that we have to kind of accept that there's, there's both sides to, to fascist violence is not good enough, right? We have to be, saying something there must be a more inspiring message there must be something there must be you know i think one of the interesting things about like the the obama administration right is it ran on this slogan of hope and change right because in 2008 2009 people desperately needed that i don't think anything's changed um, except hope died you know and, and 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 unfortunately obama bears a huge degree of responsibility for that he'll be held up as a, you know this amazing president between george bush and donald trump but, but, you know, but it was, to me, it's like, we know that the problems with the administrations like Donald Trump's and, 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 and George Bush, we know the problems with you know, the, the Theresa May's administration and God forbid something like Boris Johnson or even worse, uh, follows it on. You know, we, we know how, how, how bad those are. We know, but it's, I think it's about pushing the, the, the capacity of the, of, 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 those who those forces that claim to be progressive to do something better is really where we i think if you're if you're interested and I'm, I'm making huge presumptions about probably what people want in terms of their politics but um but but if we want something better we want something that doesn't mire us in a kind of um you know hateful um resentful angry kind of pol political discourse that produces radicalization um amongst a variety of different identities and we, we need we need to be aspiring to something else and that's i, I suppose that maybe that's the simplest point is I, at this point i don't see us aspiring to very much at all um and, and i think it's very much you know it's, it's, it's easy to see how we become very insular and angry when we don't have something you know, to 
work towards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I totally agree. I mean, it's um, uh, not I meaning to trivialise that much. So I always think it's incredible that that you know it, for, to to look at Brexit and, and all that. But I was always sort of disappointed that none of the arguments were you know if you're going to make things up, why not make them really positive? You know, free cake for yes. everyone, more <laughs> more trips to the zoo, more lovely picnics on a sunny day. You know, and that yeah. always sort of made me sad. Yeah. If you're gonna if you're gonna pull facts out of the air, you know, make things up, why, why do it have to be so negative and so hateful? And I, I would much rather try and persuade people over to my side by you know i think uh, i was a member of the um the icelandic uh, the Reykjavik mayor john nahr a few years ago who's a comedian who became a mayor and he won his campaign despite yeah. having no political background because he simply said um there'll be free towels at the swimming pool and uh, there'll definitely be a polar bear at the zoo and it was all positive and people went oh what a lovely change after the crash and everything and uh, he he got in with a resounding success and i thought oh, i just would love to see some of that really it would be a uh, a positive change um right well thank you so much for speaking with me um Kieran, one last question which is something that i ask all the guests on this podcast um which uh simply is a kind of uh, attempt to um expand knowledge and, and and a search for for proper knowledge and, and answers and opinions um i just wondered who you would recommend that listeners follow obviously apart from yourself and all your work and your course that you teach um who would you recommend that listeners follow or read up on or listen out for um on information and views and studies on political violence and terrorism who are your who are your go-to experts well i think i, I think because of like i perhaps it's you know because it precisely it's not uh the social media thing and because it's not it's something that i did mention i mentioned judith butler's work on on performance and masculinity she has she has a range of just fascinating um work on uh on identity and and political violence and you know i think there's there's probably loads of things that i could that could recommend you that are work like works on like hardcore terrorism and about how you know how, how people get radicalized and stuff like this this is much more kind of i think broad and useful to any people interested in any walk of, of politics um body of work so you, know, you there's, there's a variety of quite short texts that that she's done on on memory on on violence on, on, on grieving and things like that, which, uh, so Judith Butler, um, I, I would recommend cause it, cause I think it has relevance way beyond anything to do with terrorism and perhaps getting at this idea of maybe not focusing so much on negative. Um, you know, this is, that's to me, it was something I read and I found it to be a, a transformative text uh, in terms of my politics. So I, I would, I would deeply recommend it to, to all your readers if they haven't, uh, heard of her or engaged with her before. Many thanks to Kieran for that. And that sort of chat is why I'm not allowed to interview anyone like, say, on the telly, because I just listened to all his answers and kept thinking, yeah, I agree with that. And I'd have then found it sort of impossible to do an Emily Maitlis or a John Humphreys and throw out of nowhere something like, but don't these opinions mean actually you're the terrorist or shouldn't everyone just do national service? Or so once again, it's the failings of the Labour Party, you know, for no real reason. Actually, I think I'm quite happy just doing this podcast what am i on about um you can find kieran on twitter at kieran gillespie uh, with the link in the podcast blurb and he currently teaches on a number of subjects at surrey university ranging from theories to international relations uh, to terrorism studies so if you are one of the younger listeners of this show and that's your bag do consider it on your ucas form is that still a thing they haven't replaced it with like a virtual form or an app where you play a game and depending on how you do you get given a placement i honestly have no idea i'm so old 
Send me more ideas for who to talk to on the show. Everything in the news is Brexit right now, but there are other important political things going on in the UK and rest of the world that need a bit of voice time. What are they? Who should I talk to about them? Will they reply to my emails? Where am I? Who's taken my shoes? If you can help with any of those questions, please do get in touch at Parlborough on Twitter, the Partly Political Broadcast group on Facebook, the contact page on partlypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk or email me at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. Or, you know, you could organise a massive march through central London with the sole purpose of telling me who to chat to on the show. And as I completely miss it to deal with a vomiting baby, I'll occasionally try to work out exactly who you mean based on a few sarcastic banners. Is that a pun? What are you dressed as? Ah, this is complicated. As always, it's probably just a lot easier to email me. And that's all for this week's Partly Political Broadcast podcast. Thanks to you, the good people of Poddington, for electing this to be your weekly town crying. And please do donate to the Kofi or Patreon if you can, review the show on your pod applicants of enjoyment, and generally just spread the word about the show and say nice things about us whenever you speak to your mum. Yeah, nice one to Acast for bear-hugging this show in its audio embrace, to my brother the last sceptic for Melodic Times, and to Cat Day for typing up the linear liner notes yet again, goddammit. This will be back next week when the Conservative Party spends two days of Brexit planning, panically putting out lost person posters for David Lidlington, only to find out that he was right next to them all along. Bye! This week's show is brought to you by Brexit Alternatives. Hey, did you know British humans are the only animals to have Brexit, which just seems unnatural, right? Blur. Why not substitute that unhealthy Brexit for some of our naturally sourced alternatives, like shooing an angry goose, screaming at a butcher, or rapidly passing your bare hands over gravel? You'll find that they give you much the same results for less than half the time, and even lower cost. Brexit alternatives get your natural hit of sheer pointless frustration and self-harm now. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.